With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and also joining me in the chat room is co-host Patricia Glover Howard. And Patricia will be sending questions that you're asking to me. Well, I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on a new book, Making Gullah, A History of Sapelo Islanders, Race, and the American Imagination. The author, Melissa L. Cooper, is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Rutgers University, Newark. This groundbreaking book, Making Gullah, A History of Sapelo Islanders, Race and the American Imagination, published by the University of North Carolina Press, is a fascinating history. Using Sapelo Island as a case study, she unearths the intellectual and cultural trends that inspired and continues to inspire fascination with low country blacks and the African roots of their unique culture. Examining the history of islanders in the published works, Making Gullah tells a larger story about race and the imagination. And I want you to hear that, race and imagination. Drawing inspiration from her own family's connection to Sapelo, Cooper explores how the islanders, multi-generation struggle for land, 
and racial equality have been overshadowed by the race fantasies that pervaded the stories that researchers and writers told about their exotic folk culture. From the 1920s and 1930s to present day, Cooper follows evolving theories about Gullah people's heritage through the rise of the social sciences, the Harlem Renaissance, the Great Migration, the Voodoo Craze, Jim Crow, and the Black Studies movements. So let me give just a warm welcome to Melissa L. Cooper to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me, Bernice. Well, this is such an exciting book, and I'm happy to say that I read the entire book. <laughs> so, and I, I did, I did learn quite a bit. So, let's begin kind of with your beginning. What really motivated you? to do a case study on the Gullah people's heritage in Sapelo Island. Well, you know, um, this project began in part as um, an examination into sort of my own family's history, but um, in a different way than most people approach genealogies. I was curious to know um, how or why so many of um, my mother's family members, our ancestors, popped up in these studies and um, folklore reports and articles that were published during the 20s and 30s, um, in particular because among the islanders there wasn't a really rigorous conversation about the uniqueness of their culture. And not, not you know, for most of the time that I was sort of growing up and certainly not during the period when my mother grew up on the island. So um, as a history teacher at the time, you know, I was very interested in this larger question um, that focused on why at this moment um, where Jim Crow is sort of complete and um, black people's connection to Africa in the minds of, we think, most white researchers and writers is, a, is sort of a mark of inferiority, why was there all this interest in the connection between people on this island and their African background. And I had a sense that there was a bigger story, and I wanted to know what that story was. Well, that is very interesting. And I, I would want to know also, especially if I saw my family members showing up <laughs> and, and research, well, what's the bigger story here? And so you, you actually take the readers through a, a historical pro progression of understanding the people of Sapelo Island. But before we even talk about the, uh, the, the historical progression, tell us exactly where is Sapelo Island? It's off the coast of Georgia. Um, you're, about, you're south of Savannah, so it's one of Georgia's several coastal barrier islands. Oh, okay, okay. So we're talking about Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so because when you you hear a lot of, a lot about Gullah, you think of South Carolina, Absolutely. and so 
Yeah, so Melissa, you you started off by mentioning that you found your family members in various studies. But let's also go back to the fact that you also looked at popular uh, books and stories that have been written. And so tell us uh, what did you find when you started reading some of the literature on the Gullah people? Well, you know, when I began looking at the materials that were published, um, particularly in the 20s and 30s, because this was a time where most of the bulk of you know, uh, the published works that were introducing Sapelo Islanders to the nation or the world's readers as a sort of unique group of blacks. Um, I found uh, the, the initial discovery was a, na- a National Geographic article um, that was published in 1934, The Golden Isles of Gaul. And a, a picture from that article, the Johnson family, had always hung in the family home, but I didn't know that it was in a, a National Geographic magazine article. Um, in speaking with a granduncle, that's how I sort of discovered where the picture and the photograph originated. Um, but so that was one of the first places that I looked. And when I read the text of the article, it was very clear that um, the associations between the Sapelo Islanders who were written about and African background was sort of shaded and colored in this primitivism. And I looked to the Drums and Shadows study, which was another place where um, Sapelo Islanders were included in um, an big sort of research project to look at folk culture um, along Georgia's coast. And also Lorenzo Dal Turner's Africanisms in the Gullah dialect um, and Lydia Parrish's Slave Songs of the Georgia Sea Islands. And so because these works were conceptualized and published around the same time, I knew that there had to be some sort of larger um, push that made these populations of blacks who were living in the Jim Crow South um, interesting and sort of noteworthy. And there had to be some reason why people were curious about their culture and their inheritance. I mean, because it seems like an odd um a preoccupation in the Jim Crow era, right, Um, to really start to look to figure out things about black people's culture and their cultural inheritance. So that really sort of sent me on the road. And, And, I mean, and also what was written in the text also really raised my level of sort of curiosity about how were the researchers and writers imagining Africa? What meaning did they assign to the value um, or the important significance of black people's African heritage? Um, Where were all of these sort of ideas about African survivals originating and why were they gaining so much traction in, in each of the published works that I just um, mentioned, there were really obvious differences in the approach and perspective that the researchers took to these questions about African survivals. You know, and I also wanted to know why Sapelo? <laughs> why not any other places? And there were many places during this period in the Low Country who were who, that also became sort of focal points for this type of research. So these were the questions that um I needed answers to, uh, and, and largely because there isn't a neat 
line that exists anywhere in um, the scholarly literature that explains to you the sort of progression of this um, identity, who the people are, where they came from, what makes them distinct is um, is still something that's being and has been worked out and debated and discussed over generations. So I wanted to know more about that conversation, um, how it originated, and uh, ultimately, in the end of the book, what it means for people who are um, now sort of picking up the identity and or who are identified under this banner. And right. so I and was so, really, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about changes in the world of sure. ideas. Changes in the world right. of ideas. And, I mean, you, you, you know, your title I found extremely interesting, Making Gala. Mm-hmm. Making Gala. And so with that said, what, what are you really speaking of when you say Making Gala, a history of the islanders' race and the American imagination? So are we making up things? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I think that for most most identities, most um, categories that become ways that we understand the difference between us-them phenomenon, there is Mm -hmm. always – the evolution and construction of meaning. So people are always creating and negotiating and figuring out what these identities mean relative to the other. So the making is not necessarily um, a determination, a term that I'm using to identify that there's been some great (laughs) fiction that's been going on around the question of African survivals, but I'm really interested in looking at how the meaning of those survivals has been negotiated, what people have looked for and why, and and, and what it's meant over time. So the making is about making meaning. And at different points in the history of um, sort of the progression of this identity in the American imagination, it's meant different things to different groups of people. Yes, yes, you're right. Now, you mentioned in in your book, because you did look at various writers mm-hmm. and what they had to say about the Gullah people, and one of the writers is Julia P- Peterkins. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like you to say a little bit more about Julia Peterkins' uh fascination, if you will, with writing stories about Gullah people. Okay. Well, you know, there's so much that could be said about Julia Peterkin. I can um, say that, you know, when you start out with any researching any historical um, topic, you don't necessarily know where the the roads will lead. Um, I had got a sense very early on that the questions that I was asking were going to take me really far away from Sapelo um, and to a larger mm-hmm. landscape because the researchers who were coming were coming from other places. And I wanted to know what ideas were circulating in American popular culture about um, blacks, about Southerners, and even about people who um, were identified under this banner of Gullah. So there was a lot of 
stuff going on, right, um, during the 20s and 30s, lots of changes in the world of ideas, especially around um, ideas about race, um, ideas about racial inheritance. Um, some of them were ideas that, that were complementary. Others were ideas necessarily in conflict, like where they were in pop culture or if they were, um, you know, ideas that were growing up in the academy during the advent of the social sciences and, you know, with Franz Boas and, and, and all of his students, these new challenges to the ways that we understood race. Um, but there were also things happening, you know, in the popular culture realm, you know. Um, there were changes in the nation's racial uh, demographics. You know, blacks are leaving the South and moving to cities in the North and in the West. And, you know, so there's there's a lot of change going on. And um, I'm finding, or at least as I describe it in uh, the book, is that these changes um, – kind of come together and create a perfect storm for um, those who are interested in reimagining um, who the black Southerner is. I mean, the Great Migration is really important in this. You know, black Southerners were noticed as they arrived in these, uh, you know, migration metropolises, which is what I like to sort of, um, how I like to refer to these destinations. But um, so, you know, the New Negro Movement is also a part of this advent of modernist thought and these new challenges to the racial um, order and the world of ideas around race and the push for looking back into, you know, the folk past and folk heritage among new Negroes as well as among whites who are dealing with other issues around industrialization, et cetera. It's really layered and complicated really helped to fuel this storm. So we have Julia Peterkin, this, um, Southern writer who um, is actually comes to writing pretty late <laughs> and tries her hand at sort of telling stories about um, blacks that she says, you know, are sort of in interviews, she describes them as the people that she actually knew, um, often citing that she didn't need to rely on her imagination. And as she crafts these stories, you know, she is really a the person who I would say put Gullah on the map during these years. Um, this white woman who's a plantation mistress, as, as you know, she's often referred to, um, during the 20s, you know, it, it really picks up this new um, hobby because she's so, you know, kind of uh, sort of, unhappy with her life, as it is, at least her biographer, it, it makes that argument. And um, she begins to write these stories, and the stories become popular, and she wins a Pulitzer Prize. And, you know, the black um, literati, the new Negro intelligentsia, they, they, they applaud her works because she's writing, you know, this is a white woman from the South for the first time who is writing stories about black people, and they're complicated in some ways, right? These are blacks who are struggling through all sorts of life challenges, um, internal conflicts, right? But the one thing that they're not struggling with is Jim Crow. So she pulls from folk material that's being published in local papers, and she says that she's making observations when she's being interviewed, and she pens this world of um, 
Gullah folk and the Blue Brook Plantation and um, the way that she, you know, casts these characters who are close to the earth, who are tied to their African background. Um, She professes to use the dialect appropriately when she writes. You know, she's writing in the quote-unquote Gullah dialect. Um, It really it really propels her to a position of of fame and notoriety, and ultimately she wins a Pulitzer. So, you know, I find Julia Peterkin in this really um, interesting situation where she's admired by, um, you know, the Harlem Renaissance era, uh, New Negro uh, literati. She's admired by them. Um, she's admired by um, progressive white writers, right, the Southern Renaissance, but she's anxious about how, um, you know, the works that she produced, how they'll be received in the South. But at the same time, you know, the more that she sort of writes these stories, um, the more people are reading them as sort of ethnographies, and they're reading them like they're fact. The reviews in the papers are suggesting that she's actually recording, you know, the culture, the habits, and um, the habits of mind of a certain type of black folk in South Carolina's low country. So I found it really um, shocking to learn that the first really widespread conceptualization of um, this cultural world really, really sort of took root in the popular culture um, via fiction. Which is which is quite interesting because you're saying that people are reading her stories as if they're fact, but right. it's really fiction. And so with, with that said, though, because she has done this writing, how is she then portraying the Gullah people? Well, you know, uh, there are lots of different uh, ideas among scholars and folks who study literature about sort of um, what her portrayal is. I mean, in in my work, I essentially um, looked for the core characteristics. You know, who, what is she saying about Gullah folk? Definitely that there is a connection to their African ancestry, um, but she also lays that out within a larger tapestry um, of other blacks, perhaps, who identified themselves according to other African ethnicities. And that's something that we should probably uh, unpack um, as well. But so she's she sees these people as being folks who are, you know, sort of um, resistant to education, um, very religious and superstitious. You know, everything that happens in their world is the doings of a supernatural power of some sort. Um, and even though they are struggling through personal conflicts that um, gave blacks um, a different sort of presence in fictional literature, right, especially literature coming from the South that often characterized and typified blacks in this very one-dimensional way, um, she's still playing on stereotypes to a certain extent in order to craft the the blacks of her imagination, you know, uh, like the superstitions that she cites in her fictional works that are associated with or tied to... um, 
children who have sort of healing or supernatural powers because they don't know their father, right, that they're born out of wedlock. I mean, this is a theme, a big theme in the book um, that she writes that she wins the Pulitzer Prize for, Scarlet Sister Mary. So so in a lot of ways there is sort of um, a typification of Gullah Folk that I find troubling in her work. And what's most troubling is that the world that she paints uh, for the Gullah Folk in her fictional literature is one where there are no whites. <laughs> they are living on, you know, Blue Brook. They're staying on at the old plantation, and after long after their slave masters um, and their slave masters' descendants have all moved on, and these people have continued on. So, in doing this, this was a move where she sort of erased Jim Crow from that cultural world and background. Um, and I guess as a white woman who was also often alleging in interviews that, well, I'm not really making up these stories, you know, these are people that I really know and love and admire and have contact with, et cetera, et cetera. Um, She was also sort of erasing herself from those stories. Um, But what it does is it, it creates an illusion that blacks in the low country, for those people who are reading this fiction as fact, are somehow living these quaint, picturesque um, cultural lives that have nothing to do with race, power, structural racism, um, poverty, etc. At least not until, you know, in her final book, she attempts to kind of broaden that vision, but that, it was her last um, fictional work. However, I mean, you're you're talking about what she's doing, and there's just comments coming out of the chat room so quickly uh, that I'm going to just throw some things to you uh, because one one question is: Did Julia Pinkerton influence the questions for the slave narrative project? Uh, because many of the former slave answered questions about having seen goats. Uh, hints, a line of questions about superstitions seem common, and this is a comment coming from Angela in the chat room. Well, you know, in, in my study, I mean, thinking about the drums and shadows study, um, that was one of my big questions was, why is there every, why is this study um, of quote-unquote survival types, why is this study largely about hoodoo, voodoo, roots, and conjure? Like, why is this such a compelling um, example of the traditional folk culture? And so, you know, I think one of the things that we have to to do is think about, you know, the relationship between um, the interviewer and the interviewee and how people uh, respond, what they're being asked and why they're being asked. So what I wanted to know um, while conducting research is what did this stuff mean in the popular culture? Like, it's everywhere in these reports, um, yet within family groups and people that I interviewed whose parents were either um, – depicted in these studies or works or who were actually involved in these studies or works themselves, 
these ideas are not prominent or prevalent in their cultural world as they understand it. So I just needed to make sense of where is all of this stuff coming from. Um, And as I sort of explored American popular culture, especially through newspapers, um, it really became clear that this was a moment in America's race-making history where um, voodoo was a popular cultural theme. You know, it was a popular cultural theme, um, and that had deep roots uh, in American imperialist activities um, and deep roots in all sorts of anxieties about black Southerners coming to the North, and it's sort of a backlash, too, against um, some of the uh, racial boundary crossing that modernism really encouraged and inspired. So you open up the newspaper, and you're you're reading stories, and, you know, at first you, you think about, hey, uh, the occupation of Haiti, um, and there, there's a great study written about um, the U.S. occupation and what the cultural responses were, Mary Renda's um, study taking Haiti. And, you know, this is where you start to see the beginnings of this, you know, obsession with voodoo and, and hoodoo and black people and their superstition. And because these are also old ideas that are rooted in slavery, right, I kind of describe it as a perversion of a complicated truth that blacks have constructed a cultural world um, in slavery that involved New World religious practices and things and, and religious practices and cosmological principles and ideas that they acquired outside of the um, Americas. It's complicated, but the idea that blacks were sort of superstitious um, at a level of simplicity was was a sort of perversion of that truth. So this is already old and rooted in the culture, but during the 20s and 30s, it's, it's, it's pop culture entertainment. You know, these stories are reported in newspapers, alleged voodoo plots being, uh, you know, foiled and uh, sacrifices off in the Caribbean, uh, sacrifice attempts and, you know, films are being made about it. And so, I mean, it, it's sort of, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Right. So when researchers it's go to, yeah, it's 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 sort of it's everywhere. Uh, one of the examples that I present in the book is um, the the documentary sort of news film Harlem's Black Magic. You know, people who are going to the movie theater to see something else are seeing this dramatized newsreel that's announcing that you know Harlem residents, by and large, are secret voodooist. Um, So this is a part of the popular culture. So when people are asking questions about blacks' connection to Africa and the black past, this is is something that's going to come up in conversation. And at some points, I argue, um, at least uh, in the Drums and Shadows works, you see that it is the conversation around um, what survived of Africa. Right. Now, there's a question, and I'm going to go back and forth because I'm seeing questions coming from the the <laughs> listeners, the chatters. Uh, there's a question that says, take us back. What are the Gullah people's African roots? Uh, is, it their, is there linguistic evidence of those roots? And what can you tell us about that? Well, so, you know, Lorenzo Dow Turner um, he actually 
conducts exhaustive research on this question of um, African linguistic survivals and turns up really, really promising evidence um, that suggests that, you know, what was understood by earlier collectors of black folklore um, in the low country as sort of baby talk and an example of a sort of inferiority that the the dialect was actually something else and it had to do with um, the retention of African words and syntax and et cetera, et cetera. Um, But what I'm reluctant to do is say that um, I can tell you what we have always associated, right, with Gullah folk in terms of African survivals. A linguistic, okay. linguistic survivals, um, the survival of certain crafts, right, weaving um, fishnets by hand, um, the basket weaving technologies, certain food preparation techniques, and certain beliefs around um, spirituality and cosmology, right? These are the things that have been associated. But when I started to ask questions about the meaning associated with blacks' connection to Africa in the low country, right, in these locales where um, folks are identified as Gullah, and uh, I started to see that those meanings changed over time. So in an when we go all the way back to sort of where does this word come from um, in the American vocabulary, historians before me have pointed to, look, the slave advertisements, right, where you find that Gullah is used or Gola is used as a prefix that sort of describes who these people are in terms of their identities and ethnicities. And then I, I just see different things happening in the progression. When I read... Um, Joel Chandler Harris, who was really one of the early um, purveyors of Gullah folklore and material, when when you read his uh, discussion um, and articles that he wrote following the Sea Island um, storm in the 1890s, he says, you know, well, they're you know, the Gullah type is, is vanishing and the Congo type is quickly disappearing. And in South Carolina, it's the Gullah type. But if you go to coastal Georgia, he's actually, you know, sort of referring to Sapelo Island um, famous ancestor, Bilali Muhammad. He says there you'll find the Arabian type. But there was little discussion about what distinguished these types, what characteristics were different, right? How how are these people different or distinct? And as you move to the 20s and 30s, and I find a different set of changes sort of in the world of ideas influencing the way that African survivals are conceptualized, there are more qualities and characteristics that people are looking for in Gullah communities, and there's more attention being paid to um, the spiritual dimension, right, which is in part mm-hmm. perhaps a product of the voodoo craze. But then there's also more attention being paid to um, what it means that we can prove that there are people <laughs> who have retained their African traditions, whether they be linguistic, material, cosmological, or otherwise. So for some of my Sapelo researchers, 
like Lydia Parrish or Mary Granger and the federal writers who worked with her, that connection is um, it's it's sort of about just um, accenting the fact that these are truly uniquely primitive and odd Negro groups, right? That's the mentality. Mm-hmm. But when you go to Lorenzo Dal Turner's work, he's fighting something much bigger. He's a part of sort of the, the, the new Negro challenge to these questions of black inferiority. So t- for him, the discovery of the African roots of the Gullah dialect, what it means is that it overturns, it's a rebuttal to this notion that blacks could not conquer, quote-unquote, standard English because of some sort of, you know, intellectual deficiency, but that there was perhaps a conscious and or unconscious survival of older linguistic traditions. So even among this generation of people who are collecting this material, what it means for folks to sort of be um, connected to their their African past and to be retainers of authentic African survivals is different. Yes, it is different. And, you know, I have, again, people in the chat room asking about uh, – asking questions and one person said well if she if she remembers right some of who reside there now are descendants of the first slaves there and but is that it actually true uh, yeah but but uh-huh. so absolutely but so but my question is my research questions were less about what's true what's false what's authentic mm-hmm. what's not my research mm-hmm. questions were more about what does it mean to us to discover and uncover the usable African past? And how does yes. that meaning change generation to, you know, over different time periods? And um, how is that meaning, how does it shift based on changes in the ideas, both in the larger pop cultural world, as well as ideas floating around the academy? So that for me, was really the question. Absolutely. You know, several places in the book, I'm very, very clear on the fact that there are likely verifiable survivals um, throughout the Low Country and perhaps in other parts of the nation, right? <laughs> Completely. Yes. It's, 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 it's not even something that we need to debate or negotiate. However, what does need to be discussed and thought about is what has made what has making that connection meant at different times? Right. What yes. was the investment yes. in discovering it, finding it, documenting it? Um, and it changes dramatically over time. Yes, it does change dramatically over time. Well, we're going to take just a very quick break and come right back and keep this conversation going. So a quick break.
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. You have been listening to Dr. Melissa L. Cooper discuss her book, Making Gullah, A History of Sapelo Islanders, Race and the American Imagination. So let's go back to some of the works that the researchers uh, presented on the Gullah people and tell us a little bit more about the National Geographic uh, article that you mentioned where the Johnson family members were in that article. Yeah, that article, uh, W. Robert Moore, uh, who was a writer and photographer for National Geographic magazine, um, and it was sort of a freelance position at the time. Um, He, while on one of the home assignments, um, actually came to Sapelo, and there are some you know, uh, different sort of ideas about, you know, was he invited there by Howard Coffin, who at the time was uh, the millionaire who was a sort of paternalistic figure who ruled over the island, or was he, you know, sort of in the region, um, you know, digging up its history and noting its geographical, you know, uniqueness on his own. Um, So when he arrives... Uh, and I do believe that he's invited, right, by Coffin. It's Depression era, you know, uh, his his assets in the local Sea Island, which is largely uh, was, you know, resort, et cetera. Um, he's trying to sort of recoup and recover his finances and hold on to as much as he can. And National Geographic has his reputation by this point of being sort of the expert publication that charts and maps racial and geographic difference. Um, but so uh, blacks are not his only subject of interest when he's in coastal Georgia. He's doing what they do in Ge- National Geographic magazine, he's sort of giving you this um, overview of this distinct region and, you know, um, its history, its sites, its its scenes, the setting, what is it like. But he does pay attention um, to the blacks who are there. And he's... Um, Throughout coastal Georgia, he's not just on Sapelo. He's visiting um, several different places. And when he does come to Sapelo and he is, you know, seeking some more material because he was very interested um, in the material uh, that surrounded sort of like black culture and black people in the area when he's in a coastal Georgia, but when he he comes to Sapelo, the way that it's portrayed in the article is that he has this sort of chance encounter with the Johnson family, chance encounter of sorts, the biggest family on the island, and he wants to take a photograph of them, Um, you know, and they're 15 children. Um, But I interviewed um, 
the son, one of the youngsters who was in the photograph, Joe Johnson, we talked a lot about that picture, you know, and he sort of had a very different reading of what probably happened that day. He was a young man at the time, but he says, of course, you know, my father worked her coffin. Um, Everyone knew we were the largest family on the island, and um, the meeting was prearranged. You know, what you see in the captions is not necessarily what it was. Um, He also indicated, he says, you know, and some of my siblings weren't there. They'd already moved off to the mainland and migrated elsewhere. And a younger sibling had passed away, you know, but more put some other, you know, neighboring cousins and kids in the picture to make up the number. And the way that it's portrayed in the magazine is is opposite of that, in fact. Um, So... What I found, you know, the tendency in Moore's discussion of blacks, both on Sapelo and in the region, and you know, in, in large, was very. Um, it was very much from the primitivist angle. Um, it, it was very much from a gaze that was, um, you know, fueled by sort of the notion that blacks were inferior and one that also erased oppression from their world. Like when he described the history of the island and he talked about Thomas Spalding, who was one of the Sapelo Island's um, owners of one of the larger plantations, a pretty, a pretty famous um, southern planter, he, um, he, he describes the people that he held in captivity and bondage as, their help, as his helpers, Right and actually mm-hmm. um, wrote that Spalding was so kind and generous to them that, you know, Sapelo was known as a quote-unquote N-word heaven. And I really um, found that jarring, that this man who who dug through some archival material to find out more about Sapelo and life in the region and the history of the, the region um, missed all those slave av- runaway advertisements and all of the other documented um, acts of resistance that suggest clearly that people are not happy with their ca- captivity and they weren't simply helpers, right? But this sort of primitive ga- primitivist gaze is there. Um, and I also think, you know, you can think about the popularity of Julia Peterkin's work at the time. I mean, by by 1933, when he probably came to do um, to take photographs and to do his research for the article, um, Roll Jordan Roll, her attempt at ethnography was had already been you know published, and I'm just um, wondering to what extent the popularity of her fictional tales about um, blacks who live off on in coastal communities. Um, on the old plantation, to what extent the popularity of those stories helped to draw more attention to blacks like Sapelo Islanders, because they seem to fit, you know, this model. Right, right. right. And you, you mention in your book that when you talk about the history of Sapelo Island, you know, they miss a lot of the discussion when they say, wait a minute, there was chattel slavery here. Right, you know, the, there were there were enslaved people, and and they kind of skip over all of that to to imply this was the quote in heaven. I mean, this is this is problematic, but yes. 
somewhere someone is certainly presenting it as if it's a wonderful, kind place and, and Coffin and Spalding and all the other people were very kind people. Mm, certainly. I mean, there is no reason. Um, I, I mean, it, it's just, it, it's 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 kind of shocking to me even to see how some of these myths around this quaint, happy, quasi-primitive, you know, black folk culture, um, how it sort of has lived and continued, considering all that we know now, right, about history. I will yes. say, though, that, you know, because one of the things that I'm really focused on in the book is looking at the changes in ideas over time and how those changes in ideas shape the way, the meaning that's attached to the quote-unquote Gullah identity, um, that in the wake of the Black Studies Movement, when researchers and scholars know more about Africa and Black history, and you know the the the, the revolutions of the Civil Rights era and the Black Power Movement, you know, sort of change our orientation or the orientation of some scholars and researchers around questions of um, Black people's heritage and the importance of the Black past. The researchers and writers who pick up this material again in uh, the wake of the Black Studies Movement, they reinsert chattel slavery. They reinsert Jim Crow to a certain extent back into the stories that they're telling about the Gullah. Because in that, you know, in this new time period, right, um, these that's an important piece, and they understand that it's missing. So they know that a couple of things have happened the folks who collected the material and published the articles and wrote the books and directed the studies in the 20s and 30s um, may have had a primitivist orientation and may have had a sort of prejudiced vantage point um, and at flat out at times some racist ideas, but they also inadvertently captured um, a repository of material that would have gone away otherwise, right? Stories that Bilali Muhammad's descendants remember about um, learning about their Muslim ancestor would have been lost if we did not have these imperfect collectors trying to collect, you know, material about these primitive folk off on this island. So, when the researchers um, in the wake of the Black Studies Movement recover this material, they're doing different things with it because the world of ideas has changed. And so they can start to see in the lyrics of slave songs collected by Lydia Parrish and in some of the stories recounted by um, the Savannah Union of the Georgia Writers Project, they can start to see different things. They start to understand um, so much of what they had collected differently than the original collectors. They conceptualize something more meaningful even um, than what you know was assumed when the original collectors found it. Lawrence Levine, um, the historian, is a really good example of this. Um, when he writes... Um, his study on black folk thought, black culture, um, black consciousness, when he writes this study, he goes back through this folklore material and he reinserts all of the oppression that was erased originally. And so, you know, you can see that, oh, wow, these lyrics are suggesting that um, blacks had to 
um, take certain steps to subvert the authority of whites who were dominant in the region. You know, you ask different questions about Bilali Muhammad, you know, um, is the importance of capturing his story uh, just that? He um, was a Muslim slave kind of coloring the region as more African, and that's what it was for some of the 20s and 30s researchers, right? People like um, mm-hmm. Lydia Parrish and, and Mary Granger, even though they were working with um, a scholar, Melvin Herskovitz, who was very enthusiastic about if we get this journal transcribed, then we can know so much about the world of a learned enslaved man from Africa. Like we, This can change the way that we understand stuff. Well, that's, and that's in part because he is coming from a change in, you know, schools of, of thought around um, race, right? This anti-racist cultural anthropology mission. At any rate, so in the later era, right, when there are different ideas yeah. circulating, what people can find in, in, in these older works is much different, um, and so I think that is really the history that we need to know about the Gullah, is that, you know, the ideas and meaning around the people and the places change as our ideas about race, culture, what it means to be connected to Africa as black people changes in the minds of the observer. And so when you talk about this change, because I'm getting just lots of questions, okay? <laughs> so I'm going to throw these questions out to you. And one is, how were Gullahs received by non-Gullahs? Well, that's really interesting. I mean, but because then that goes, takes us back to who's using the term and what does it mean? In the mm-hmm. 1930s, when the Georgia Writers Project staff is interviewing people um, in coastal Georgia and asking blacks, you know, about Gullah, right, Um, people were responding, uh, local blacks were responding with, yeah, well, I used to know some Gullahs or those people were Gullahs or, you know, that it was a prefix that was assigned by, you know, slave masters to to folks who were, quote unquote, you know, sort of fresh from Africa. But it was interesting that even that group of folk who were interviewed in the 30s, they, they weren't using that term to identify themselves per se, right? They weren't talking about themselves. There's still questions that loom today about, you know, Gullah is um, a name associated with blacks in South Carolina. They had always been identified in South Carolina's low country that way. But in Georgia, it was Geechee, right? Um, however, that's a contemporary conversation, because if you talk to anyone, any black person in the low country who who is more than 60 years old, they would tell you to be called Geechee was an insult, it 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 carried the full weight of a host of derogatory ideas that were not acceptable so i mean there's even that in the conversation about you know so before we think about how were gullah or gichi people received by non gullah and gichi people you know even identifying oneself as a part of the group is something that has a history and has a historical progression so no one would identify, no black person in the low country would want to be called Geechee, you know, 30s, 20s, 40s, 50s, 60s. But, oh, by the 70s, 
80s, 90s, that changes. And it changes that because changes. all of the negative associations with um, these identities that were largely associated to these early interwar primitivist studies had been erased and and were being erased by the work of scholars and fiction writers, like black women fiction writers, do wonders for recovering and um, sort of restoring what it meant to be Gullah Geechee and what it means to be connected to Africa in their fictional works. So mm-hmm. that changes. So now, you know, to be called Gullah Geechee is not a, a bad thing. That means that you have a distinct and unique link to um, your West African progenitors for, for people. And that's what I map in the book, these ideas, now they shift. Right. Now, there, there's, again, many, many questions. So, are, and you just said this, the embracing, but are we witnesses to recreation or embracing of something kind of exotic? This is a question coming out of the chat for you. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think that what has happened in the recovery is for certainly perhaps there um, are people um, who might interpret or in sort of embrace a more um, exotic or like essentialist ideas about what it means to be Gullah and Geechee. Um, but for a large group of people, especially those who sort of reclaim the identity in the wake of the black studies movement, this was about, you know, embracing a black race pride that was national, right, <laughs> among black people in the wake of mm-hmm. the black studies movement and after the black power movement. This is a national phenomenon, um, but the Gullah sort of get a special place in this moment because of um, the African survivals that have been documented, again, by these less-than-perfect collectors, um, but yet and still, at the moment that they were recovered and found and unearthed or, or rediscovered, this became a sort of evidence that chattel slavery did not destroy black people, right? And there are all sorts of debates about this from the 20s and 30s that by the time we get, you know, between uh, Herskovitz and E. Franklin Frazier, by the time that you get to um, the advent of sort of black studies, those debates have kind of been muted and kind of quieted. And the idea that African survivals are infallible and important wins in the end. So, you know, um, I understand this work as important work in recovering, right, from racial injustice in a way on on the psychological level. And so that's how Mm -hmm. I I understand it. Um, What But that's why it's important, too, to continue to ask questions about meaning as opposed to, you know, um, is this real, is it valid, and is it just for people to stake these claims? Right. Well, now I have a a long question that I'm going to throw to you that's coming from the (laughs) chat, okay? Okay. So how do people today respond to the concept of a Gullah Geechee nation? which we hear of today with the queen, a national flag, 
And now emphasis on speech cadence. What do people say who are being depicted as Gullah today? Well, that's a really, really big question, um, and I grapple with that in one of the final chapters of the book, um, especially in relationship to the creation of the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor. Um, and so one of the big mistakes of the interwar era researchers was that they sort of made an assumption that, you know, to a certain extent, these people are the same. And um, they are sort of a one community. But what really comes out um, when I did research on the, con- the creation of the corridor is that these communities are different, and people have some similar concerns, and they are definitely all struggling, struggling through um, land loss and, and tax hikes and all sorts of um, things that jeopardize their communities, longevity, and whether or not these communities will be there, whether they would still be historically black communities. So different people in different places throughout the low country have different ideas about what the best strategy is to hold on to these historic family properties and how to sort of survive and keep heritage and community together. Um, I think that what became the Gullah Geechee Nation is one strategy, and different groups in different places, both on islands um, throughout the Low Country and on the mainland in the Low Country, these black communities have tried various strategies to addressing um, the land loss crises in particular that they're facing. Right, and the land loss crisis is what you're hearing a lot about. Absolutely. I mean, and so, but what's interesting about it is we often hear, you know, Gullah Geechee communities losing land, land loss, communities, you know, with uh, tied to African ancestors or slave ancestors are losing land. But it's really interesting, right, because isn't there a question that's kind of inherent in that? If these communities are famous for and are um, noted for their connection to their African enslaved past, and and we're talking about what they're losing and what they're struggling to hold on to, there's sort of a question there about what is owed, if anything, to uh, people who have that connection. That's right. So, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So this has been just uh, a, an amazing discussion tonight. And believe it or not, we're cut off. <laughs> we have discussed... <laughs> I know it has gone really quickly, but do you have any parting words you would like to share with the listeners and the chatters in the chat room about your book? You know, um, I I would just I'm I'm really was looking forward to this conversation, and I'm looking forward to future conversations. I know the ideas um, that are expressed in the book are really new and different. Um, And so I'm really excited to have more conversations with people outside of the academy and universities about what this all means. So I look forward to that, and I hope that as people 
um, read the book and learn more about it, um, opportunities for these conversations to continue will be there. I would definitely encourage your listeners, too, to continue their own searches. I mean, your audience is largely uh, groups of people who are really interested in genealogy and history. And if there's anything I've learned from dibble-dabbling in, in, in a project that was at some points a combination of both is that there's so much to be discovered and the stories might be bigger than you know. So keep searching. Okay, and the the listeners and the chatters are asking, how can they get a copy of your book? Oh, okay. Well, you know, it's available wherever you can find books. Um, Amazon, it's um, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, all the dot-coms. And so that's a really great place to find it. I think the UNC website, you can probably order the book there. So um, those are probably the most frequent places to find a copy of the book. And I do have another question for you before we end. <laughs> is there is there a movement to save Sapelo Island and how many out people are still on the island? I absolutely. Um I'll say when I started the book at the beginning of the prologue when people read it we're talking about after the civil war a few hundred blacks who are on the island. Um, and so now, as I understand it, you're talking about less than 40 descendants of um, Slapolo Islanders who were enslaved and or liberated there after the Civil War who are living year-round on the island. So within the span of pages that is the book, that number, the population, the decrease is staggering and stunning. However, um, there are some very committed land retention activists on the island and organizations, um, and I talk about some of them. I write about some of them in the book. So people are still trying to figure out the best ways and strategies to negotiate the air property crisis, tax hikes, and what do you do to hold on to property um, in the face of some economic realities which have dramatically changed the landscape? However, for those who read the book, closely you'll know that this is an old fight, right? Um, resettlement of the island after the Civil War, land was an essential expression of freedom. So this has been a fight that's been going on since Reconstruction. Right. And the uh, one other question, <laughs> do they still have cultural festivals there? <laughs> yes, they do, actually. I think it was canceled this year because of the storm. Um, okay. But Cultural Day Festival still takes place. Okay. Well, Melissa, I'd just like to thank you so much for joining me tonight. Oh, and please you. remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives, and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages, and also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Frock. Angela Walton Raji, and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host 
Nika Sewell-Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Dr. Cooper. (laughs) Good night. Thank you again. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.